viewing that light actually has a pro-depressive effect. A hundred percent of mental health issues will have some component of circadian disruption. It affects mood and brain circuits. The higher recovered you are, the more efficient your cardiovascular system is working. For women who are, are naturally cycling, there are uh, very obvious trends in heart rate variability and, and heart rate that, that follow the, the cycle. You're listening to the High Performance Health Podcast, helping you optimize your health, performance, and longevity. My name is Angela Foster, and I'm a former corporate lawyer turned high performance health coach. Each week, I bring you cutting edge biohacks, inspiring insights, and high performance habits to unlock optimal health, performance, and longevity. So excited that you've chosen to join me today. Now let's dive in. Hi friends, I have been so looking forward to releasing this podcast episode. In today's episode, I am chatting to the amazing Kristen Holmes, who is the Vice President of Performance Science at the health and fitness monitoring company Whoop. I've been a longtime fan and user of Whoop, and I think like me, you'll learn a ton from the science that Kristen shares. Kristen's focus is on understanding the scientific, psychological, and personal factors that either promote or harm human performance. And in our conversation, you'll learn what the science and data show us about how to optimize your workouts around the menstrual cycle, how to improve your heart rate variability, the effect of sleep on our recovery and cardiovascular system, the timing of food on the quality of our sleep, and so much more. So without further delay, let me introduce you now to Kristen Holmes. So Kristen, I am so excited. I've literally been beyond excited. I think the first time our teams connected and said we were going to do this, I was like, yay, I can't wait to record this. And then I think it got moved around with our schedules, but we've managed to get together today. Firstly, welcome, welcome, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me, Angela. It's such a pleasure. It's awesome to have you here. Let's start with, I think so many people listening to this podcast will be aware of Whoop or use Whoop. Mm. From my perspective, I'm always coaching my clients and listeners and saying to them, mm. treat yourself like an athlete. That is how you're going to achieve high performance because you look after your sleep, your nutrition, your HRV, et cetera. Um, but why don't we start with what is Whoop and how can it help mm. us achieve a state of high performance? Whoop is a 24-7 physiologically mon physiological monitoring device. It's taking your... It's sampling heart rate, um, you know, uh, I think it's 50 times a second. So it's it's super robust. It does not have a watch face. So it's simply for those, I don't know if folks can see, but you can see the whoop on my, on my wrist. It's just a, it's just a band. And, um, and all of, uh, every single heartbeat is, is getting kind of pushed, is, uh, is is there's algorithms that um, are working in the background to synthesize this heart rate um, information and give you insight around how your body is responding and adapting to uh, to external stress and we call this recovery uh, and we can talk about some of the inputs that go into recovery but recovery basically is is in, in understanding kind of a snapshot in time of of how you're managing stress uh, and that manifests in in it's a function of the heart, but manifesting your on and off nervous system and heart rate variability is a measure of that adaptation. Uh, so it's very, very powerful, full metric. And it, it includes not just what's happening from a physiological standpoint in terms of how you're, you're moving and training, um, but also just your psychological, um, you know, status as well. So it's, it's a very powerful marker. Uh, and then we also measure strain. So um, that is a basically a measure of your cardiovascular load, uh, and it's mapped on a scale of zero to twenty-one. So this isn't, um, you know, we 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 don't use steps per se. We use strain, and um, and and strain really tells you how hard your heart is working, uh, and and how hard your heart is working is is obviously a, a really important source of insight if you're looking to improve the trajectory of your health. Um, and then we also measure sleep which um, as we know is the foundation of, um, of human health and, and flourishing. Um, so we, we help you understand um, some of the circadian components, uh, which we can talk more about uh, in terms of sleep. So sleep is a um, is not a circadian rhythm and it's an output of the circadian clock. So understanding how much, um, how consistent your sleep wake time is, for example, we call this sleep consistency, uh, is really important because that influences how much time you're spending in deeper stages of sleep. So we help you understand relationships like that uh, and surface those relationships so you can um, understand where to actually apply your effort if, in fact, improving your sleep is, is a goal. Awesome. 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 There's so much that I want to dive into here because mm. I'm an avid user. Um, 
Let's start with, because we look there, strain, sleep and stress. Let's start with the stress expert, because you, you began mm. with that. Because for me, it was very, very interesting. Uh, and as you know, as you use it, track a lot of metrics in relation to stress. I literally just flew in. I'm a bit jet lagged on this mm. podcast. I flew in from Colorado yesterday. So we can talk about how it's this, yeah. tracking it for me. Yes. But when I was over there, you know, that first night when you arrive in a new location, right, your brain is kind of really scanning, isn't it, for mm, things that could mm. be at risk in your environment. You're sleeping in a new environment. Was, I arrived late at night in the dark. I was on my own. It was very interesting because what I noticed was normally my stress level is super low when I'm asleep. Mm. And Whoop was actually noticing and saying you're in the medium stress zone mm. through sleep, which was really insightful for me. And that's yeah. definitely how for, and I didn't wake up refreshed. Yeah. I was jet lagged. Um, how is it? So what's it looking at? And I, I see that happening all day. And it will say to me, oh, your stress today was highest at, and it was outside of exercise. Mm. So uh, it's very interesting. Yeah. Can you kind of elaborate on so that? So that feature is called Stress Monitor, which is uh, a new feature that we launched uh, this year. And it really, it's looking at your heart rate variability and your heart rate in, in real time. And the algorithm basically takes those two inputs and... Um, and based on you know years of research, we know um, when certain uh, things are happening with heart rate and heart rate variability, um, we know that you are uh, inactive but stressed, right? So if I'm like running around the yard with my dog, of course my heart rate variability is going to be suppressed, my heart rate is going to be raised, right? And I'll be in a higher stress zone. But that doesn't mean that. But that is a different type of stress. So we're what stress monitor really tries to understand is at rest, what is your stress level, right? And we want to, um, and because you're, you travel to a new time zone, your baseline uh, levels of, of your baseline heart rate was basically, is basically elevated, right? Because your body is um, trying to manage that circadian disruption that occurs when you're traveling across time zones. And what that yields is this higher baseline stress. So you will have a higher resting heart rate or higher heart rate and a more suppressed heart rate variability, which is going to yield on this scale of zero to three, which is how we measure stress on uh, with a stress monitor to scale of zero to three, you will have a higher stress at rest. Um, than what you normally would, because your body is um, having to deal with all these perturbations in the environment. You're viewing light when you wouldn't normally view light. For example, you're eating food when you wouldn't normally eat food. You are awake when you wouldn't normally be awake, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're all of your circadian kind of all of your clocks in your in your body, all of your biological clocks are tuned to the 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 um, to, to England to that time zone. So, um, so that it makes sense that your, your stress would be elevated in that manner. And would it have picked up on, I know you monitor blood oxygen. So mm -hmm. I was speaking at a conference in Boulder and that's at mm -hmm. altitude. And I was noticing whether it was the jet lag, I don't know, or but I was feeling slightly lightheaded mm -hmm. while I was there. It yeah. wasn't picking up big reductions, but I wonder, would that also register on the stress? Cause presume my breathing would be a little different. That is not an input into the algorithm, to the stress okay. monitor algorithm. And it's, it's literally just heart rate and heart rate variability and the interaction of, of the two. Of the two. Okay, mm -hmm. interesting. Yep. So then when we look at strain, because I find this very interesting, yep. and I'll wake up and I can see um, my, my strain like score that I should be hitting mm -hmm. across the day. Mm -hmm. I really want to understand myself and help listeners understand. You categorize, uh, you're in the green, you're in the red. Um, and you can be in the yellow. Mm -hmm. Now, whenever I listen, because I love the Whoop podcast, right? Oh, whenever <laughs> I listen, I hear, I hear, it's amazing, all the research you share. I absolutely love it, and the people you interview. I always Thank hear you. Will Ahmed say, stay in the green. But I thought no. the idea was not to stay in the green. No, no, no. <laughs> because you we don't want to make adaptations. Yeah, and, and not to contradict Will here, but I, I think what Will is saying is that you want to try to manage your 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 life and your recovery in a way that um, you're not uh, stressing the system in a negative kind of chronic fashion, that you want to, you know, have periods of, of stress and periods of, you know, kind of functional overreaching, uh, but not get yourself into a place where you're in the red. Red is really 
pretty unnecessary. Um, okay. and, and for the most part, you shouldn't really find yourself in the red unless you're, you know, engaging in behaviors that are really crushing your system. And we can talk about some of those behaviors. So I think this concept of being in the green is more of just like a, a framework to kind of think about your behaviors in a more, more holistic way. But, but you're, you're right, Angela, you, you definitely want to, stress is not bad, right? And I think that's, and I think society has kind of, um, I think given it a bad rap, but we, we need stress, right? And we, we call mm. functional positive stress. We, we call it, 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 it creates this um, kind of phenomenon called hormesis, right? Where, you know, a, enough of uh, kind of stress that doesn't kill you actually makes you stronger, right? So you want to actually be in the yellow. All that means is that, and, and you mentioned, you know, there's a stoplight. Green means you're highly recovered. Um, yellow means that you're moderately recovered and red means that you're under recovered. And, and yellow, if you're working out hard and you're, you know, busy during the week and you've got a lot of things going on and um, it, it would be absolutely normal to be in the yellow. And provided that you're kind of managing uh, that stress in a, in a proactive, healthy way. Um, and, and then you take the requisite rest after those bouts of stress, you'll actually see your baseline metrics improve, right? You'd see an increase in heart rate variability relative to your baseline after bouts of stress and then appropriate levels of rest. You'll see decreases in resting heart rate, right? Where it becomes non-functional is we have all this stress, 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 we keep going stress, stress, stress. And then finally, a month later, we take a vacation, we get sick. <laughs> it's called the letdown yeah. effect. You know, but that is what we want to try to avoid. So we want to have, you know, uh, three or four days where we're stressing the system with, you know, really hard workouts. And, um, and then we want to be able to, to make sure that we're taking the rest that we need. And the data that comes through just helps us understand the recovery data. This, that stoplight helps us understand how we're adapting to that stress. Is it functional? Is it non-functional? And that insight can help us then determine how we should approach the next couple of days. For example, if I'm not adapting functionally, let's look at the behaviors. Let's look at how my purpose and my efficacy and my control, some of these core psychological needs that we know we're going to move around these metrics of recovery. Um, let's look at my sleep behavior. Is my sleep-wake time really inconsistent? What about my meal timing? Am I eating a lot of meals close to bedtime, which is hugely stressful for the system and is going to dampen recovery. Um, am I, um, what is my relationship to light? Am I viewing a lot of bright lights in the lead up to bed, which is suppressing my melatonin production, which not only is going to help me fall asleep, but it's going to help me stay asleep. And um, it also has neuroprotective effects. It has, uh, you know, antioxidant um properties. Uh, it has, you know, eliminates free radicals. It uh, reduces risk of cancer. I mean, melatonin is so, I could go down that rabbit hole for, you know, ever is so important, but our relationship to light, what that is going to contribute to our recovery, um, how we're managing stress during the day. Are we building in many moments of rest during the day um, relative to our stressors? Even if that stress, we perceive that stress is really good, we still need to bake in a little bit of rest um, because that if, if we're not baking in rest, that can accumulate negatively and end up um, impacting how quickly we fall asleep or maybe how um, our ability to actually stay asleep at night. So um, all of these things kind of work together to kind of contribute to um, that stoplight that, that folks are exposed to in the morning. Perimenopause can be a time of significant disruption, not just to our hormones, but also to our sleep, anxiety, energy levels, and gut health. Add in a busy work schedule, workouts, and three kids, and I know that I need more nutrient support than I used to. While I do my best to get enough vitamins and minerals through whole food sources every day, there are times I can't quite get enough servings, and that's why I take AG1 every day. It covers my bases with high-quality ingredients like pre- and probiotics to support gut health, adaptogens to help buffer stress, antioxidants and whole food source nutrients to deliver that welcome boost in energy. One daily scoop of AG1 covers my nutrient gaps and supports my mental and physical health without a lot of hassle. I simply add one scoop to my water in the morning with the confidence to know I'm giving my body what it needs. Taking AG1 helps me to feel more energized, sleep better, and gives me glowing skin. 
If there's one product I had to recommend to elevate your health, it's AG1. And that's why I've partnered with them for so long. So if you want to take ownership of your health, start with AG1. Try AG1 and get a free one-year supply of vitamin D3 and K2 and five free AG1 travel packs with your first purchase exclusively at drinkag1.com forward slash Angela Foster. That's drinkag1.com forward slash Angela Foster. Yeah, super interesting. I've definitely seen that with clients. If you if you don't take those micro recoveries as you're describing, yeah, can then impact your sleep and you just can't get into those deep levels. Yep. I mean, yep. I looked at myself yesterday. So when I the plane got delayed, right? So I ended up mm. leaving, thinking I was going to leave Colorado in their evening, sleep on the flight, and come back. And by the time we all got taken off the plane, then back onto it, I'll say fix. So by the no. time I leave Colorado, it's actually five a.m. in England, right? So you're I'm just, awake. Like, I arrived and I was like, oh my god, I have no yeah. idea what time it was when I arrived. So yesterday I was in the red, right? Yeah. Which is what you're saying. So those totally. kind of occasions. Mm-hmm. And now I'm trending up and going back in the, mm-hmm. in the yellow. Mm-hmm. From what you were sound, saying there, it sounds like if you're having three to four days of yellow a week and then about the same of green, you're within that functional overreaching as opposed to non-functional, right? And I, That's right. I always say with my clients, whether you're an athlete or not, we can learn from the athlete mentality that we want to functionally overreach, not non-functionally. And if we continue mm-hmm. to non-functionally overreach, we then get into the athlete's definition of overtraining in the real world, i.e. burnout, right? That's where we're heading. So exactly. this is super helpful for guiding us. Yeah, it just, it helps you course correct before you mm. get to a point of no return, you know? And and that's like, you don't want to be uh, three months of, of you know, of, of overreaching, um, overtraining, you know, is the, is the, the kind of the corollary and, um, and, and being a, in a situation where it's going to take months and months for you to kind of get back to neutral. Like you just don't want, you know, you have this baseline and that's why I think to me, that is the biggest opportunity with this type of technology and with whoop is that you, you get a baseline understanding of, of where your health is, right. And your behaviors are either going to help improve that baseline or your behaviors are going to diminish that baseline. And it's, you know, and, and I hate to make it so, binary, but, but, but that, that's really, it, it, it really is kind of that simple. You know, you, you have a set of behaviors that are going to upgrade your physical, mental, and emotional functioning or, or, or not, you know, and, and it's very clear from the, the research. And this is really a bulk of my research is just, this is understanding what is the taxonomy of behaviors that contribute positively to human flourishing and resilience. Um, and when we know what those behaviors are, we can make a conscious choice to engage in those behaviors as often as possible. So we can, um, you know, stay at baseline at minimum or, you know, improve um, our, our things like heart rate variability and, and, and heart rate, which are, are markers of, of our overall kind of cardiovascular and metabolic function. And when we look at heart rate variability, because this is where people get competitive with each other, right? And there's so many variances because it's partly age, partly genetic, right? Partly lifestyle. Right. When we look at that, um, some people just seem to have a lower HRV. Mm-hmm. I think Dr. Peter mm-hmm. Tia may even have said that his tends to trend lower. When we're yeah. looking at it, we presumably has taken ours over a period of time mm-hmm. and is then guiding us whether we're, we're dropping below. Mm-hmm. Um, many people that I see and work with will be in that kind of 30s and 40s range they're pushing the envelope quite hard on a consistent Mm -hmm. basis and they don't really see it trending up much unless they do take real recovery what what are your thoughts around heart rate variability and how different they are person to person and and then how we can improve it i think it varies greatly um and i think it's a product of of all the micro you know choices you've made over the course of your life um there's a lot that can in in of what's tough is that we don't know what our heart variability was at birth, for example. And, you know, whether that on a scale, whether that is, um, uh, you know, kind of above the the average or, or average or, or below average, right? So we don't actually know our starting baseline and, and how that would inform my future state. If I were to do, let's say everything perfectly from the moment I was born to now, what would my heart rate variability be? Would it be 200? Would it be 250? You know, no one kind of knows the answer mm-hmm. to that. So all we can do is, is you know, think about the information that we have today. So if I were to come on the platform, I get, you know, a, a baseline heart rate variability. And I think what people need to, to understand is that how, again, you know, did in the moments leading up to, to, to today, you know, have I, do I drink alcohol every day? Do I get the sleep that I need? Is my sleep wake timing really variable, right? Which has a huge impact on, on human health. Am I eating over the course of a 16 hour window 
or an eight hour window? Am I, um, you know, how am I managing my relationships? Did I have childhood trauma? All of these things are going to impact, you know, your, your, your heart variability. Um, so there's not a whole lot I can do with everything that's happened, but I can start to, to take control over my choices today by understanding, you know, what is going to improve my ability to adapt to external stress. And that's really what heart variability measures is, is my capacity to adapt to my environment in a functional way. The higher the heart variability, the more functional I'm going to be able to adapt to my, uh, my environment. And we know that a higher heart variability is also associated with decreased risk and mortality, cardiovascular events, uh, metabolic disease. So there's lots of, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, just a powerful, again, snapshot on, on kind of where you sit today. And, and most importantly, you, if you're consistently doing, you know, the, the, these kind of health promoting behaviors, you will see it, it go up. Um, you know, I, I joined whoop, uh, I, I was tracking heart rate variability with first beat. Um, so well before my time at whoop, I was very aware of, of my heart rate variability and it's hard to compare the devices, right? So my heart rate variability on first beat is kind of different than, than my heart rate variability on, on whoop slightly. Um, so, but taking my whoop data, you know, I've improved my, my heart rate variability by 27 milliseconds over the course of the last seven years. So and awesome. that's just as a by, baseline. So it's as a baseline. Much by a baseline. Yeah. 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 I mean, I was wow. consistently, yeah. I mean, I was in, you know, I was in the, I guess the high sixties, I guess. Um, and you know, now my baseline is, you know, 9,800, um, you know, awesome. which I'm, I'm in my late forties. So yeah, it's, um, it's, uh, I, I think you can modify it and, um, you know, it's just, consistently adopting behaviors that are health promoting. is just the bottom line. <laughs> what would you credit would be the biggest like needle mm -hmm. movers that you yeah. found to get that baseline up by so much? So in 2017, um, I was working with a lot of um, elite athletes. And so I had, I had access to lots and lots of data. And one of the things that we started tracking after um, I read a paper that was published in 2017 in the summer um, by Andrew Phillips, uh, he's a, a incredible uh, sleep researcher, and he basically came up with this sleep regularity index. So how regular um, your, your, your bedtime and wake time is. And he saw in this four-year perspective study with at Harvard University, he saw a relationship between um, sleep-wake regularity and GPA. Um, and the folks who had more regular sleep wake times had higher GPA and it, it wasn't even close. Um, so it's the difference between getting an A and a B essentially. So I started tracking, um, sleep wake variability with the athletes on the whoop platform. And sure enough, we started to see all sorts of, I mean, it predicted everything, <laughs> which was just wild. So, so as I start to see this manifest in the data, um, I started adopting that behavior myself because I could see how it reduced injury and illness and just folks' subjective um, feelings of 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 well-being. You know, seemed cor were correlated with sleep wake time. Um, you know, deeper stages of sleep were correlated with sleep wake time. So there was all sorts of things popping. Um, and then I started to do some controlled experiments. I did a. a a study that was published in May with, um, it was published in military medicine. It basically looked at sleep, wake time and psychological functioning in us army, Alaska soldiers and thousand soldiers. And, um, and basically what we saw is that sleep, wake time actually, um, predicted workplace resilience and psychological functioning in these soldiers. Um, and, and again, you know, those folks can read it. It was, it was published in May. Um, so anyway, it just, this, one behavior continues to surface as being the most predictive of not just physiological, not just psychological, but physiological function as well. And indeed, we see with every minute of variability, we can basically predict how much your heart rate variability and rest is going to decline and your heart rate variability, your heart rate will increase. So sleep, it, yeah, so it's, it's, um, so for me, stabilizing my sleep wake time has been has been the biggest needle mover. And I would say that I'm probably the first person, I mean, you are in this space as deep as anyone. And have you ever heard that before? Not that that is the biggest mover for it. I, I, have, I, I, just, I, I was aware of like, mm. when I look at clients, for example, I can't, you can't get results. The ones that travel consistently, it's mm. very difficult to get solid sleep, deep sleep yeah. metrics from. Um, but I yeah. didn't realize that that was going to be the biggest needle mover on the HRV was that consistency.
I mean, circadian, yeah, circadian disruption is, um, I mean, if you think about it from the standpoint of um, when you look at mental health issues, 100% of mental health issues will have some component of circadian disruption. Would you like to uncover the secrets of your metabolism and hit your weight goals in a really easy, scientifically driven manner? For over a year now, I've been using a smart little device called Lumen. And through a simple breath test, Lumen helps me optimize my fasting period. It tells me the best time to eat carbs, how to fuel my workouts, it tracks how stress and sleep affect my metabolism, and gives me daily personalized meal plans. Lumen is the first device to hack your metabolism and reveal your lifestyle and diet's true impact on your health and ability to lose weight and it can help you to enhance fat burn lose weight and boost your energy naturally and lumen is giving listeners of this podcast 90 dollars off all you need to do is head over to angelafoster.me forward slash lumen and enter code angela90 at checkout to save 90 dollars you can finally take charge of your metabolism in 2024 with this exclusive discount. Simply head over to angelafoster.me forward slash lumen. That's A-N-G-E-L-A-F-O-S-T-E-R dot M-E forward slash L-U-M-E-N and enter code Angela90 at checkout. Now let's get back to the show. And when you align your sleep-wake time, then you end up invariably aligning your light behavior, right? So when you, you're waking up mm. and viewing light at a very regular time, which sends, you know, tells your body exactly what it needs to do. Like all of our biological clocks, the clocks in our body, they're, 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 they crave regularity. And, and they are um, the, they only know what to do based on light signals and dark signals for the most part. So when we're giving those clocks the wrong information, cells, tissues, organs, like everything that should be happening is, is not happening in alignment. As a result, your body has to work so much harder just to maintain homeostasis, just to like, you know, operate at baseline. You're asking your body to work so much harder. And this is why I hate to say this, but shift workers die 15 years sooner than the regular population because they have chronic um, uh, circadian disruption. And in fact, I would say most folks actually qualify as shift workers because of how our be our relationship to light. I mean, we have screens, you know, coming at us well into the lead up to bed, right? And and this impacts again my what I mentioned earlier, this melatonin production. Right. And when we look at the mechanisms behind metabolic dysfunction and um, infertility and cancer risk, it is suppressed melatonin production is is kind of at the root of a lot of that. And have you found, Kristen, with this um, that when we look at like sleep wake times, I know that Matthew Walker, for example, he says, you know, control the wake time because you can't always control the sleep yes, time. But exactly. You, the issue with that, I guess, is when you control the wake time, if you're not controlling the sleep time, you may by definition be shortening that sleep quite significantly. Have you found one or the other is more important in terms of that HRV metric and also some mm -hmm. of the better sleep metrics you see? Yeah. So this is preliminary data. This is um, where I think the only folks in the world who, who have these data, sleep onset absolutely matters. There's no question, right? When we fall asleep matters. I think what Dr. Walker is, is suggesting is that if we want to try to um, get ourselves into a regular sleep-wake cycle, we want to focus on waking up at, the sim at a similar time every single day, because what that does is, is then where our exposure to light is happening at a similar time. So basically uh, that first pulse of light 16 to 17 hours later, we are going to start to feel sleepy. We will release melatonin. So if we don't view light at a regular time every single day, we are not going to drop that melatonin at the strength that we need to feel sleepy in the way that we need to, to actually fall asleep when maybe we want to fall asleep or when our natural pressure for biological sleep is. Um, when we don't have that regular pulse of light in the morning, or it's really inconsistent in terms of its timing, um, we, our clocks become disorganized again, and we don't really um, end up releasing melatonin at a, at a predictable time, or it's not even strong enough to make us feel sleepy enough um, at the right time. Eventually, we build so much pressure, sleep pressure, and okay, it's 1 a.m. Mm -hmm. and we fall asleep, but that's obviously a suboptimal on a lot of levels. So, so yes, sleep sufficiency matters. 
but sleep regularity trumps time in bed. And there's a new paper that just showed this um, linking all-cause mortality to sleep regularity independent of sleep duration. Interesting. And I actually want to pick up on something you said there because with the light, that's so important. That's why Andrew Huberman, is he's very um, yeah. uh, clear on this, isn't he? Do not have blue light between 10 p.m. and 4 a.m., but mm -hmm. also putting those bright lights on uh, in the morning. Because if you think like in the UK now, it's not getting light at this time of year till close to 8 o'clock in the morning, and then mm -hmm. it's going to be dark just before 4, which mm -hmm. means that you can be up for a good number of hours with no light. I think that's why he says put those really bright lights into the eye because otherwise that – that day of darkness we're kind of experiencing is then going to in turn make it harder to sleep. And we see yep. that in, in um, blind people, right? They have profound problems sleeping because they're not exposed to light. That's exactly right. Yeah. It's um, yeah. Blind people, un unfortunately are not, um, they don't have the photo receptors to be able to experience that light. Um, and as a result, they have very desynchronized circadian rhythms and, um, you know, a lot of health um, issues as a result. But yeah, I mean, that study, I think that, that Andrew is, is talking about is, is, is incredible. It's, it's timing of light exposure. Um, it affects mood and brain circuits. So I think what people have to understand, you know, I think we're all, everyone's like, what is happening with all the mental health issues? Why are we in this mental health crisis? Well, I, I don't, it should not be, we should not have to guess here. It is, it is our, relationship to light. And uh, this paper really, I think, highlights the fact that when we are viewing light between um, 10 p.m. and 4 a.m., so any kind of light that is, um, you know, directly into the eyes that's um, more than like a candle a meter away is going to impact our melatonin uh, production. And that melatonin production, um, again, has this kind of neuroprotective effect so I think mechanistically we can link it to that. But I think what they saw in this paper is that viewing that light actually has a pro-depressive effect. So, you know, if, if folks are, you know, getting up in the middle, you know, wake up in the middle of the night uh, and are looking at their phones and experiencing a lot of light, um, that will actually stop the melatonin production. And that's why you end up waking up. Um, and it's, it's really hard to kind of, um, fall back asleep, obviously, the longer you're viewing light. If it's very brief, your melatonin will um, resume after you kind of get back into darkness. Um, but the longer you're exposed to light, you know, the more you, your chance you have of like shutting that off. And that actually impacts the dopamine system next day is what that paper mm. highlights. Super interesting. Yeah. And what about with chronotype, right? So when mm. we're looking at the consistency of those sleep-wake times, mm -hmm. do we see, do you see improvements um, in users when they're, I, mean, I guess it's hard for you to know what their chronotypes are. I know I think uh, one of the other users is trying to look at chronotypes, but really that's just based on the, the behavior that people are demonstrating. I know yeah. that I had, you know, very, I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder at one point and oh. all kinds of medication. And as a mm. corporate lawyer in my former career, you know, we just didn't respect sleep. We were pushed no. to get the deals through. It was all nighters, it was yeah. weekends. And my chronotype, when I've tested it and when I've done questionnaires, is an early morning type. And I'll naturally wake up at five. In corporate law, it didn't matter how early you got in, you were not going mm. home. Do you know what I mean? Before yeah, like yeah. 1am. And I did end up with mental health problems. It's very interesting. I think there's a whole variety of reasons for that. However, I'm just curious as to whether when we talk about the consistency of sleep wake time, how much you have found in research or through users mm -hmm. that aligning with your chronotype is also important. Yeah. So I, th I think I, I want to just say that let's talk about healthy sleepers because circadian phase disorders and are a whole nother ball of wax. And mm -hmm. when they feel sleepy is going to be different than the healthy population. But in healthy populations, I don't know that there's this, I think our, our notion that we've got these chronotypes and that they're, you know, a, a morning person versus an evening person is, you know, wildly different. I, I, I don't, that's not how I interpret the research. Um, I, the, the research that I've seen makes me think that chronotypes are kind of like not really a thing actually. Um, okay, and that it, in, in that, that the variability between, you know, if you, Angela, are an evening person, I, Kristen, are a morning person, we're going to fall asleep within 30 minutes to an hour of each other, not three hours, right? We're talking about preferences here, which, which, which you, um, you know, kind of just beautifully articulated. And I think the research that's most compelling is Ken Wright, Dr. Ken Wright um, out of Colorado. And he in fact did a study in Colorado where he took a bunch of folks who had, you know, these uh, uh, self 
first, I think they actually, they looked at kind of chronotype and, you know, there is, yeah, some, um, in terms of when you release melatonin, again, these like kind of slight shifts. And, and so they kind of looked at, um, folks who think their, their chronotype is, is eveningness, think their chronotype is morningness and, um, and, and then looked at actual markers of, um, to, to, to kind of define, um, whether or not that was true. And what they saw in the study is that kind of regardless of all of that, um, and, and again, there was no, sorry, in this study, there was no artificial light exposure. So everyone was, um, you know, basically once the sun goes down, it was just darkness and every single one in, person in the study fell asleep within 30 minutes of one another within 72 hours. Interesting. So I, I think, you know, did studies and there's lots of research on hunter gatherers and they're all falling asleep within 30 minutes of each other. I, I just don't know that our, our, how society today kind of defines and thinks about chronotypes is, is actually, um, an accurate view, um, on the, on the, on the, um, which is exciting in the sense that, you know, if you're really interested in, in optimizing health and, and paying down illness, injury, burden, risk, um, this is actually one thing that you can do, um, that will be very, very health promoting is, is stabilizing sleep, wake time and, and really biasing. You know, I think there's a lot that's happening, you know, before midnight, certainly. And I think this research, um, timing of light exposure affects mood and brain circuits, I think further validates that, you know, something after 10 PM, we are not, we have not evolved to be awake. We have not evolved to be taking in light. We have not evolved to be eating. We have not evolved to be socializing. Like that is just, I think it's just the heart. It's just the reality of the situation. People can choose to do whatever the heck they want. And I, I'm not here to judge anyone. I'm just telling you, I'm just talking about the science. Yeah. It's more of a preference. If you say I do my best work at like early hours of the morning. I think <laughs> so. Yeah. Exams. It, yeah. Yeah. And it, yeah. And you, you've just, because you've shifted your circadian rhythms does not mean that's healthy for you. Mm. I think that's a key point. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it's just like, okay, you've shifted your circadian rhythms, but you know what? You're putting huge amounts of stress on your body, right? If you're eating when your body wants to be sleeping, you are going to head down a path of metabolic dysfunction. Maybe you'll get lucky and that would happen to you, but it's, you know, the, the research is really clear. Um, you're going to increase your chance of cancer. Like, it's just like, it's just the, those, these are the facts, right? This is what we know from the, the literature. And, um, and I, you know, I think some people come at me with daggers, but I just, I'm going to read the studies, you know, and you know, it's, it's not, <laughs> it's not my fault. <laughs> I'm just, just sharing the science. Just sharing the science. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's clearly key. The, the wake and the sleep time. What about the sleep duration? You were saying that actually consistency trumps. One of the things that I found, and you're probably going to tell me off now, is that Whoop is always guiding me to way more sleep than I naturally seem to stay asleep mm. for or can. So I'm in a situation like mm -hmm. probably many women at my age, right, where I have teenage children who mm -hmm. are beginning to stay up later. My husband and I train before work in the morning. So we train at sort of 5, 6 a.m. And I mm. like it and it really sets my mind in the right place yeah. for the day. Yeah. And so <clears throat> I'm kind of getting six and a half-ish hours to seven. And Whoop seems to tell me sometimes you need nine and a half hours. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. So, so sleep regularity is indeed a stronger predictor of mortality risk than sleep duration. So that was in a prospective core study that was published just in, in 2023, uh, Windred, W-I-N-D-R-E-D, uh, So I think if you're stabilizing your sleep wake time, Angela, um, you're likely you know, getting into deeper stages of sleep. Um, that said, you, you know, most humans need to run through about three sleep cycles, three to four sleep cycles. So you just want to ensure that, um, you're spending enough time in bed to kind of make it through those sleep cycles. Cause if you're not spending enough time in bed, you're basically going to give up a lot of the REM, uh, sleep that, that you need. And, and we know that, um, you know, uh, uh, neurodegenerative disease, um, you know, if, if we're, there's a lot of important things happening during REM. So if we're cutting our sleep short, then we're not getting into REM and, um, the amyloid protein kind of build up and the, and the, 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 all the cleaning that, that needs to happen during that phase of sleep is, is potentially not happening if you're not spending enough time in bed. Um, so all that, all that said, um, I, 
I think the WHOOP algorithm, um, sleep need algorithm is, is what you're referring to, probably needs to be adjusted a little bit um, because it isn't necessarily, you can't really catch up on sleep um, for the most part. You know, all of the genes that, you know, should have turned on yesterday um, during my, you know, during what would have been my bi biological sleep, just all of a sudden aren't going to do that doubly well tonight necessarily um, mm. in when I'm making up whatever I lost last night. So there's some, I think, flaws in, in terms of the sleep need algorithm. Um, that said, you know, if you are really short on sleep, um, you can extend, you know, I think a half an hour um, on the front end and back end to kind of catch up. But again, the regularity is is more more important, I think, than you know, getting into bed for ten hours, for example, because a lot of that's going to be junk sleep anyway. You know, mm -hmm. you're not actually capturing, um, you know, pure like positive biological sleep necessarily. That's going to be restorative in nature. Um, in terms I've of how I've that actually yeah you know, on the yeah. sleep metrics just extending it if you do it a weekend it doesn't it, mean that I get loads more deep or REM because I seem to be quite efficient I don't yeah. I was going to ask you when we're looking at should people be utilizing uh the the device to actually understand their deep and REM like where are we in terms mm. of the ability to understand whether that's a true indicator of the amount of deep sleep how it's accurate is that at the moment it's such a great question. And, and one area that my, my team is uh, wholly focused on this year is really trying to define this notion of healthy sleep, because I think, you know, for all the reasons that we're trying to like unpack right now is like, what, what does actually really matter? You know, if we are, you know, sleeping shorter, but like super efficient, is that okay that we're kind of consolidating these phases of sleep? over a shorter period of time, as opposed to maybe the seven or eight hours, for example, like, you know, there's a lot of unknowns, I think, to, to answer your question. And I think for us, it's more of just like giving an individual just a baseline understanding of, hey, this is how the percentage of time you're spending um, in these deeper stages of sleep. We're not perfect at staging sleep by any means. Um, but we're, we're, we're pretty close in terms of knowing that, hey, you're, you're in this, you know, physiological deeper sleep um, and, and you're, okay, yep, you're in light sleep and, okay, you're awake. So it's a very kind of crude bucketing, but I think it just at a high level gives you just a sense of, of, of your overall sleep. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, I would say, you know, don't take it to the bank, but it does give you just, you know, if you're, if you're like getting... 10, if you're spending 10% of the time in deeper stages of sleep, there's probably something off, right? Generally speaking, average healthy sleepers are, you know, somewhere 35 to 40% of their total sleep time is in these deeper stages of sleep. Sleep is that deprived. Deep and REM. Or yeah. So it's REM just like, together, yeah. Combined, so when I say yeah. deep, I'm just kind of combining NREM and REM or uh, slow sleep and REM. Um, and I think where, um, I just think I had like a, a kind of a follow on train of thought. Um, I think when people are, if they are in sleep deprived sleep, they'll be, you know, 50 to 60% of their total sleep time is in these deeper stages of sleep. So is, is, is that healthy? Right. And we would imagine that our ability to make up for a crappy night's sleep last night, is your body, your body is kind of compensating appropriately. And that's a good thing. Right. Um, but if that's happening chronically, if we're in this cycle, um, that's probably not, not good. Right. But we don't know how not good it, it is. Right. And I don't think anyone has the answer to that question. So these are some things that we're going to try to try to understand. Like I, I did a study, um, it was also published in Annals of Surgery uh, in in September, and it would looked at acute care surgeons, and you know these folks are just in a constant state of sleep deprivation. You know they're going you know 17 hours awake, and then you know really disrupted sleep, so they have maybe three nights in a row that's just crap sleep, and then they'll get you know 80 percent of their time are in deeper stages of sleep, right? So this is like true like sleep deprived sleep. Um, and, and you, you would think, okay, that that's, that's, that's good, but we don't really know if that's good or not. So these are just mm. questions that we need to uncover, but. 
Interesting. Thank you for clearing that up. Um, yeah. With the with the strain, this is mm. very interesting for me. Um, very interesting because I'm a big fan uh, of Dr. Stacey Sims. She's been on the show a few times. We just mm. we just recorded our third episode actually together. That's coming out, and I she love just joined our work. team. I thought so. <laughs> yeah. So well, she's been a science team. advisor. She's for- amazing. A while, but yeah, we just, we literally last night, she just. Oh, she's now actually on the team. Amazing. Yeah. She's going to work on the performance science team and help us. Um, She and I are actually going to develop. Well, I actually can't say what we're going to do, but we've got a lot of fun stuff in store for next year. That's and so Stacey, exciting. I knew she yeah. was an advisor, but that's amazing. Yeah, I'm I know, I know. That. So she'll have a more of a, a, a kind of a heavier hand in the stuff that we're doing uh, around all things female, women's health. So super exciting. Brilliant news. I know. That's where I was going to go with this now. So she was obviously uh, like some of the things we've spoken about together is the importance of doing power and speed based work and keeping these sessions mm. really short and sharp and having lots of recovery. Mm-hmm. And then I have people say to me, you know, doesn't this cause extra stress? I'm really low on energy. And like, no, actually. And when I track it on my route, true to the research mm-hmm. and everything that she mm-hmm. shares, um, and, and I, I want to come on to the strength trainer because I love that too in a moment. Mm. But if I do some short, sharp sprints, actually my strain score will not be that high, even though I'm going in that zone five at max because mm-hmm. there's plenty mm-hmm. of recovery and the duration itself. So it's a great way, right, to make mm-hmm. adaptations in terms of aerobic health and and, and kind of fast twitch muscle fibers and speed mm-hmm. and power. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love that aspect and the ability to track it. One question I have before we come on to strength trainer, when it's looking at strain, right? So today I am at a 13.4. I'm just having a look. Now I'm very jet lagged. Uh, and so my recovery is only at like 59%. Mm-hmm. And I did do a bit of strength training this morning. Mm-hmm. Um, when we're looking at strain, is it adjusting according to, when it's saying to you, this would be your optimal strain. If you go beyond this, you're overreaching. Mm-hmm. How is this all working? Is it, It's assessing your recovery, presumably, but then also as I'm then adding load, right, and and Mm -hmm. doing some work effort in whatever capacity that is, um, is it calculating the strain based upon how recovered I am? So Mm -hmm. I suppose what I'm asking is, could I do the same workout on a different day where I'm in the green and get a less of a strain score? I'm just curious how this Mm -hmm. is working. Yeah. So basically, in theory, the higher recovered you are, the more efficient your cardiovascular system is working. So what would have taken, you know, today, for example, let's say your workout gave you a 9.8 strain and you're 59% recovered. Let's say two days from now, you do it again, you're 90% recovered, you might get an 8.8 strain because your body is working more efficiently. It doesn't mean that you didn't work any less hard. It just means that your body perceived that um, because it's working more efficiently, it was um, it had to basically, uh, you know, you were uh, able to kind of adapt to that stimulus more efficiently, and that results in a lower strain. So even though your effort was the same, your body is more recovered, so it can adapt to the stimulus more effectively. Perfect. And yeah. in the strain, is it taking account of when you're looking at cardiovascular strain, is it based around movement and effort? So for example, if I was to have a really intense work day and I just go from, mm-hmm. you know, I don't know, meeting to meeting to meeting and I'm not really moving, will that be registering as strain or is it physical mm-hmm. activity? Yeah. So that's kind of where stress monitor fills that gap a little bit is that you can kind of see um, how much you're how, how much stress you incurred in those non-active moments. So we're strain won't be as good at being able to understand because kind of that cognitive strain, while it, um, it can increase your heart rate substantially, it's not like you're running a mile, right? Like that's just, a, it's just a different, um, uh, it's gonna, uh, it's just a different cardiovascular perturbation. Um, in, in, so it, it will, show up in your strain for sure um, at lower levels and be a part of that kind of total day strain. Um, But you might not, it might not get mapped as an activity because your heart rate isn't high enough. So it hasn't met that threshold for us to say, hey, this was an actual activity that we need to uh, account for and and display for you. But that's where stress monitor kind of fills the gap. Hopefully that answers your question. I think so. Yeah. So the strain is more physical. So with Mm -hmm. that then, um, what's the reason for not including any kind of step count? Yeah. So I think our, our stance on that has been, 
you know, when you look at movement in general, um, or when you look at steps, it, it's a little bit of a blunt instrument in that I can be rowing, for example, and not taking any steps, but I'm working my heart really hard. I could be swimming and working my heart really hard. Um, you know, so, so steps is, is kind of, I think there's more research around it, but when we started this whole kind of campaign around strain, it was really, we want to understand how hard your heart is working and we want to understand, we want to help you get cardiovascularly more robust and more fit and, and steps really isn't enough of a guide to, to kind of get us there. You know, how your body is responding to and, and adapting to, to, to stress, I think is really where a lot of the insight is, you know, a lot of the insight comes. I think that's really interesting because you, you and I obviously both having worked with First Beat, what's really interesting mm -hmm. as well, you probably saw this, is even if you're moving around and you're doing laundry and things and you're a relatively fit person, First Beat is not going to tell you you're active because on the electrodes across the chest, it's not registering that you are putting effort. Right. Whereas you could go and look on another monitor and it goes, oh, you've done 15,000 steps a day today. And you think, oh, I must be really fit and I'm really, really active. Actually, yeah. no, because you're not getting positive adaptations from that, right? Uh Right. I, it, you know, it, it all just depends on, I suppose, what your goal is. But but I, I think if we think it more, think about it more of, you know, you've got sedentary behavior and you have active time. So we know that, you know, sitting for long periods of time, you know, even if I were to run a 10K when I first wake up and then I sat for six hours in a row, like that will have really no amount of workout I did in the moments leading up to that kind of six hour block of sedentary time is going to um, uh, kind of undo the impact of that sedentary time. So I think we just need to, to kind of rethink the whole thing and just recognize that we, we don't want to be sitting continuously for huge bouts of time. We know that this correlates to all sorts of, um, you know, negative health outcomes. So we want to try to break up our sedentary time with active time. And, and that can be just, you know, walk around the house, doing the dishes, like the laundry, going up and down the steps, um, doing some, you know, squats. Um, but that might not be, or maybe I, I drop down and do a plank or do some sit-ups. Um, this is all active time, but these are not necessarily steps, right? So it's again, like, you know, how, how is our heart working over the course of the day? Am I standing? Am I sitting? So I think having just a perspective of just like, all right, what does my day look like? I know in principle, I don't want to be sitting for long patches of time. You know, I want to get up every half an hour to an hour and move around a little bit. Um, and then I want to build in, you know, I want to build in some zone five. I want to build in some zone two. You know, I want to do that a few times a week. I need to strength train, you know, a few times a week, you know? So I think it's just kind of getting out of this like step mindset and, and thinking about, all right, how hard is my heart working and how active am I versus sedentary and just making sure that proportion of time is in a healthy range. And yeah, I think that, that folks would do really well to, th to think about their day more in, in that context. Yeah, for sure. Thank you for clarifying for that. Mm. Um, so on the strength trainer, I was mm. super excited when you did this because yeah. it actually allowed me to recognize, because I love weight training, yes. uh, what was going on. Get credit um, for it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Get credit for it. I was. I don't know if I've missed this. Is it possible to do it in kilos? I, like, I have to convert from pounds all the time. I don't think you can put oh, it in kilograms. Oh, dang. So it kind of like <laughs> extends my recipe. So I'm like... What is it in pounds? I'm constantly having to do the 2.2 .2 calculation. So I don't oh know if everyone gosh, in Europe so might funny. be the same as me. Oh my gosh, that's hilarious. I know the the kettlebells in the US have both the kilograms and the pounds. Some but of yeah. the uh, cable machines do. But as oh, soon as I'm on free weights, I'm on like, a dumbbell, convert, yeah. Convert, yeah. Oh shoot. Or like shoot. lifting the bar and stuff like that. Okay, I'm going to I'm going to yeah, I'm going to write that let me write that down. Um That would be such a cool change. Yeah, that sounds so obvious. Um Jeez. Okay. Especially with all of our international expansion, that seems to be, we need to make that happen. Okay. I'm on that. Cool. Um, so with that then, I'm glad I, th I thought maybe I'd missed it. So with the um, workout, this is great because it's showing you the total amount lifted and it's showing you the strain, right? So mm. how much you might be depleting resources and need mm -hmm. more recovery. Yep. And that factors in, does it, your heart rate in combination with the amount lifted. So presumably mm -hmm. it's, it's important as you're doing that to hit play as you're doing mm -hmm. that lift, 
because That's then it's exactly assessing right. the heart rate. Is that correct? It's assessing the acceleration um, and and the heart rate. Yeah, so it's it's velocity based training is is kind of what we're we're understanding um, how quickly you're moving the weights. Um, oh, and really? there's an algorithm, yeah, that that helps us understand what that load on your your musculoskeletal is, uh, the the musculoskeletal load, and we're able to kind of map that and and then help you understand like how much how hard you actually worked, um, and then by understanding how hard you actually worked, we can factor that into um, how much recovery you might need. So if you're lifting, if you're deadlifting, it's assessing the speed at which you are lifting the bar. Interesting. So then if it's really heavy and you're having to lift it very slowly, it's more strain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's super clever, isn't it? Yeah. I don't know anything else that does it. I love it. <laughs> no, I know. It's, it's the kind of the only thing on the market, um, which, is, which is really sweet from the wrist. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah. Okay. Well, I guess my final question to you, because you've shared so much, unless there's anything else you want to cover... Um, is what are your top tips then for enhancing human performance? If you can Mm. kind of sum it up. Okay. Um, So I I think uh, there's three entry points. There's the circadian entry point, there's the recovery entry point, and there is the the strain entry point. On the circadian, I kind of talked about that ad nauseum, you know, sleep-wake time, um, I would say second on that list is um, restricting your eating window to eight to 10 hours uh, and ideally when the sun is up. So this is different than intermittent fasting in that there's, um, it's not just about restricting calories. It's not that at all. It's about um, the timing of when you're eating. So there's a circadian component to it. So you want to try to you know finish your last calorie by 7 p.m. or within three hours of when you intend to sleep. Um, very, very important to human health. Uh, and, and again, I, I don't think it's kind of talked about enough as a, as a relatively low barrier to entry in terms of, um, in terms of helping you, you really improve your metabolic health. Um, and I, and I think when we think about metabolic disease, I think it's 74% of uh, Americans, I think are struggling with metabolic health. Um, so this can, you can reverse diet pre-diabetes in about three weeks with time-restricted eating. So three weeks, that's pretty quick. Which is insane, right? In some studies. Yeah. So it's just, um, you can get yourself kind of 60% to your kind of metabolic goals just by um, thinking very intentionally about your, your eating window and ensuring that you're not eating, you know, like during these really big windows throughout the day. Um, And then I would say uh, your light behavior is the other huge thing to dial in. You want to get a huge bolus of light as soon as you wake up, natural light, um, not through a glass pane or window, but just get outside. Even if it's you're in the UK and there's lots of cloud cover, you're still getting lots of beautiful photon energy that's going to set your circadian rhythm. That is so critical for human health and so critical to help you kind of get into those deeper stages of sleep at night. They are totally uh, tied. Um, And then restricting light at, at night. And then the recovery side, you know, sleep duration does matter. So making sure that you're spending, you know, enough time in bed to get through those cycles of sleep where you can fully restore. Um, I love all the kind of hermetic behaviors, um, the, the, the behaviors that promote hormesis, um, like cold plunge, um, sauna, if people have access to that are hugely beneficial. Doing each of those a few times a week um, can really uh, improve mental health resilience, improve um, immune function. Um, and then I would say hydration is, is also, we see that correlate to recovery um, as well. Uh, so that's like another big one, um, making sure you're getting enough water, um, reducing alcohol consumption, stopping caffeine, you know, by noon, all impact recovery. And then on the strain side, I would say, you know, try to get out of breath a few times a week um, and, you know, try to lift heavy things a few times a week. Um, and then if you can go for, you know, some nice, big, long walks, um, you're going to put yourself in a, a really good position, I think, to adapt to life in a, in a more functional way. Amazing. And with yeah. the, um, with the, with the intermittent, like the eating window, mm. if you've got someone who's working out early, would mm-hmm. you encourage them to stop it short? I know when I'm speaking to Dr. Stacy Sims mm. for women in particular, she's like, you're getting the autophagy benefits. So if you, you stop eating early, go to sleep. But then if you're working out early in the morning, 
refueling post post workout. I'm mm-hmm. wondering whether you're seeing that come through on the data because I know you know I know that you now enable users to track menstrual cycle. Mm. Um, whether that enhances recovery if they're eating because you can you can also track nutrition and things now, can't you? We can, yeah. Can so you? we actually just launched a time restricted eating study. So this is one thing that we'll aim to look at in the data um, if we actually see uh, do these eating windows um, seem to uh, be different. Um, for men versus women. Um, so these are things that we're not, there's very limited data, as I'm sure Stacey, you know, told you around intermittent fasting and, and, uh, and, and women, but it does seem that, you know, women in certain, if I'm going to increase my, um, restrict my eating window to be narrower, to take advantage of some of the health benefits of autophagy, for example, I'm going to do that when I am in my kind of more uh, lower hormone phase of my cycle. So I'm going to do that during the follicular phase. So during menses and ovulation, um, I, I extend my, my kind of fast window. Um, and then when I'm in the luteal phase, when my body is, you know, kind of uh, in a, a more, a, a kind of a naturally lower energy state, because there's so many things it's a metabolically very expensive time of the month. Um, I'm not going to layer more stress on top of that by, um, by fasting. So Mm -hmm. those are times when I would, um, make sure that I'm kind of eating, uh, still within a 10 hour window, but, um, you know, I, I wouldn't, for example, delay my breakfast time. So I think about it like that. If I'm working out really early, um, I'll have like a couple bites of yogurt and some honey, maybe a bite of an, a banana, and then I go work out. Um, so I try not in that low hormone and that high hormone fo- phase, I definitely try to make sure that um, I'm not working on an empty stomach. And then I'm, you know, again, not adding extra stress to, to kind of an already, you know, biologically stressful time. Yeah, it makes sense. And when you're looking at the menstrual cycle with that strain, so if mm. you're in the luteal phase and it's mm-hmm. assessing your strain, presumably, although as a user, we can report what stage of the cycle we're in, the calculation is being made on what your heart rate, your heart rate variability, your sleep is doing, as opposed to the fact of, because you could have some people, right, who just naturally recover better in the luteal phase than another mm-hmm. person, for example. Yep. So is it more based on the actual data that's coming through as opposed to cycle phase? It's more, it's more to do with the data. Um, so we, we see the cycle phase and the data actually align really strongly. Okay. So for people who have healthy periods, so regular periods, you know, somewhere between kind of 27, 20, 25 to 35 days, I think is considered healthy. Um, there, there are definitely, and for women who are, are naturally cycling, there are uh, very obvious trends in heart rate variability and, and heart rate that that follow the the cycle so in that follicular phase we see you know higher heart rate variability lower resting heart rate um and and in, indeed you know during that phase folks are, are probably a little bit more primed to kind of uh take on heavier volume and intensity just life load um and and then in the luteal phase again that more metabolically expensive time we see suppression and heart rate variability and increases in heart rate variability and, and, and heart rate um and indeed in the week leading up to menses we see you know sleep perturbations we see um sleep disturbances are a little bit higher so at population levels we definitely see very very clear patterns for naturally cycling women um and i think there is an opportunity to kind of align our our behaviors with our cycle in a way that we're working with our our cycle and kind of not against it Mm, makes sense yeah amazing thank you so much Krista and you shared so much I think I've just I've hit you with so many questions (laughs) I'm very grateful to you for answering them all because I I love I love the product I think it's amazing it sounds like so much exciting stuff to come to oh yeah we've got so many cool things on the horizon and uh yeah just always aiming to, to 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 really try to simplify it so you so folks understand exactly how they need to apply their behavior you know if you know they're they're looking to um you know, improve their health and the trajectory of their health. Um, so yeah, we're, we're super grateful to be on this journey with so many folks and, uh, yeah, thank you for, you know, being a, a member and, and using the, the, all of the features, like, uh, you're definitely a power user. There's no question about it. <laughs> <laughs> I think my husband and I both love it. And then he tries to compete with me on data, right? As men uh, do. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. Always. I know. Yeah. Yes, always. Um, where- <laughs> Where can people find more about you, your work personally, and then also about Whoop? Yeah, so I am, uh, so uh, whoop.com, so www.whoop.com is the best place to find out more about the product and become a member. Uh, and then for me personally, I, you know, try to be pretty active uh, just 
talking about all the things that uh, we talked about today, um, any new research that my team or I are publishing or anything that I think is really interesting um, in terms of research, I usually post about on Instagram, Kristen Holmes 2126, and then um, relatively active on LinkedIn as well, again, with the same goal of just trying to evangelize a lot of the, 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 the research, uh, specifically around the circadian research. Um, and, you know, again, kind of helping people build frameworks on, on how to think about their behaviors in, in the context of their, you know, kind of goals and, 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 and health, health goals and aspirations. Amazing. Thank you so much. We will link to all of that in the show notes and thanks right, for coming on and sharing. So much, it's my pleasure. Thanks for all your good work. I hope today's episode inspired you on your journey to vibrant health and high performance. Make sure you check out the show notes for a summary of all the important links to everything we talked about. And if you enjoyed this episode, hit the follow button and share it with a friend on social media or leave a review over on Apple Podcasts. Remember, achieving high performance health is about getting 1% better each day. So think about one thing you learned from today's episode and start implementing it today. Share with me what you've learned on social media over at Angela S. Foster. I love hearing from you and connecting with you. Have a beautiful day and always remember you are worthy of your dreams. Mm -hmm.